I think Polygon's dead if they don't, you know, somehow develop some sort of ecosystem fund. Like you just can't compete with Arbitrum, Optimism, et cetera, being able to hand out token incentives and bring users over to your chain. I just, I can't get over that point. Like even if you look at Gains Network, that was a Polygon native protocol that migrated over to uh, Arbitrum as well. They have two versions live every single day. It's 85% of volume on Arbitrum. They literally just got a stip worth, I can't even remember, it's in the five to $10 million range. Like if you're not getting that on Polygon, like wh why wouldn't you be on Arbitrum? Hey everyone, Sam and Dan here. And before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to shout out MetaMask Portfolio. Are you always constantly stressed like us managing your portfolio across different chains, wallets, LP positions, perps positions? I'm excited to tell you about MetaMask Portfolio, which lets you manage all of your crypto assets across different networks, wallets, all in one place. Do more with Web3 your way with MetaMask Portfolio. You'll hear a little bit more about it later in the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Check them out on the ground at DevConnect and be sure to mention 0x Research when requesting a quote and you'll get a free Web2 pen test with the purchase of your audit. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of 0x Research. we got a great analyst episode queued up for you today. We're joined by 0x Pibbles and Ren from the BlockWorks Research team. We're recording this on today, October 23rd. Uh, and so we this episode will drop in two days on the following Wednesday on October 25th. And again, we're joined by Xerox, Pibbles, and Ren to kind of bring all of the latest market happenings to you. And we're all part of the BlockWorks Research team. And if you're interested in checking out some of the cool work we've been doing, be sure to use code 0XResearch10, all caps, uh, for a 10% discount uh, at checkout. Uh, we just launched a new analytics tab. We'll get into a bit of that a little later on in the episode. We're going through some of our governance updates, uh, but do be sure to check it out. If at the very least, scroll through our Twitter. We got a lot of our good stuff going through that pipeline. Uh, but to kick things off today, we'll do a little top mover, biggest loser. So Sam, I'll uh, kick it over to you to get us moving. Yeah, for the mover, this one felt like a pretty easy one this week. Bitcoin dominance, definitely in the driver's seat, it feels like we're nearing up to like 53%, which is the highest level we've seen in a while. As people who have been here in previous cycles are familiar with, usually Bitcoin dominance goes up and then altcoins uh, kind of rally towards the more frothier part of the market. So it's always encouraging to see that price action. <clears throat> we saw BlackRock made uh, an, an amendment to their S1. Not sure what the hell an S1 is, so don't ask me. But basically to see the ETF with some cash, so it looks closer to approval. Not sure if that has much legs or not, but nonetheless, people on Twitter were talking about it, so it seemed important. Plus uh, CME futures open interest, which in my opinion is the best gauge at I guess U.S. Uh, institutional demand, more on the TradFi side, is at highest levels since early 2022. And you've got Bitcoin supply on exchanges at a five-year low, which I found super uh, interesting. Uh, so yeah, Bitcoin dominance, definitely uh, the top mover this week. But we've also got movers out of Link and Soul, both uh, kind of moving pretty hard. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this, this section here. So you just mentioned uh, the amount of Bitcoin on exchanges and... You know, with Bitcoin, there's only so much on-chain analytics you can really do. Uh, but people try to, to get every inch of, like, really squeeze every drop of water out of that. And so the Bitcoin on exchange is one I find quite interesting because I get the idea behind it, right? If you're sending a big, if you're sending tokens to an exchange, you're you're one step closer to selling them. Uh, so that's kind of like a, a fear metric. But how much credence do you guys give to that metric of being like, oh, if there's a ton of Bitcoin on exchanges, like look out below, or if there's like little to no Bitcoin on exchanges? Well, that means that nobody's going to sell. To be honest, not really. Uh, I would even go so far to say all of like those like fancy metrics that they have for Bitcoin on like CoinGlass, or that like one website with like a ton of like fancy like miner or like whatever metrics. Like I don't really look at that. I feel like it's kind of like overthinking it. Even like Coin Holder days and like they've now multiplied that by like something else like i think it's just too complex you, you just have to like left curve it at this point of the market with like a spot bitcoin etf coming up right we had the whole like coin telegraph like fake bitcoin etf news uh last monday and i think this weekend's move was sort of like an after effect of that right i'm not sure if this move would have happened without that coin telegraph move because that thing got announced the market pumped 7.5 percent and then everyone's like oh shit like what if the real like spot 
Bitcoin ETF gets announced, I don't want to be sidelined off like a 10, 15% pump. And so like the market, people start deploying, people start buying in because they don't want to miss out the real thing. And it just results in the price like slowly going up. Yeah, on the um on the the BlackRock ETF thing. So Sam said that S1 filing had an amendment about seeding the initial product with cash. So I think it specified like it said like October blank, which kind of implies that they're going to use cash to buy a ton of Bitcoin potentially in October, which makes sense like if you're going to start this product first, you got to get the actual asset that you're offering exposure to. But I'm I'm curious to see like what the custody situation is for that because we're all kind of assuming Coinbase, and hopefully that's the case. Yeah, another interesting thing that I noticed here was uh, you know the holiday season's right around the corner, so I got to start prepping my uh, my responses to Wow, do you still have a job? And that started with pulling up the S- uh, the S and P versus Bitcoin year to date performance. The S and P is up eleven percent, uh, and Bitcoin is up eighty six percent. That was like like I, I knew we've been performing well since uh, a lot of the fallout from last year. But damn, that's a big margin. That that one feels good, and I will absolutely be using that chart. And, and it, it, that doesn't quite look the same for ETH as well. By the way, I don't have the the ETH chart pulled up in front of me, but Bitcoin has had a great year. And so it's no surprise that dominance is really kind of kicking, kicking us forward here. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, I was writing the newsletter earlier this morning, which, by the way, everyone should subscribe to if they haven't already. It's very good. Uh, but uh, basically, the share of uh, hash rate owned by public miners is at like an all time high right now because they're kind of buying like the distressed, less well financed uh, miners assets. So I think they're going to perform super well and they already have. They're actually outperforming Bitcoin pretty much by double. So I'm sure that's definitely catching some like traditional financial market players. eye, kind of thinking, man, this is like really high beta to an already like really volatile asset. So maybe adding a 0.5% allocation there would make a lot of sense. Um, but I think that's a good spot to head over to the biggest. I want to I want to add some more context there. So I just quickly pulled it up, and ETH is actually up forty percent. So it's kind of straddling the eleven percent of the S and P uh, and the eighty six percent of Bitcoin. And so interestingly, the Nasdaq is also right around forty percent at thirty five. So that's kind of ETH is kind of trading more like tech stocks, whereas Bitcoin's just beaten to its own drum. Very interesting. That is interesting, actually. I wouldn't have guessed uh, ETH to be on par with kind of the mega caps in the stock market, but. That's a, that's a good call out, Dan. But for losers, I've got just sideline folks. That's pretty much the only loser I could think of because <laughs> everything else is up today. And I'm sure when this drops Wednesday, a wrench will be thrown in this commentary. But nonetheless, on Monday, that's definitely the way things are panning out. I'm curious, uh, just based on the sentiment you guys see on CT, does anyone have any, I guess, projections or predictions on like what percent of crypto Twitter participants are sidelined on this move? I just don't know how you can be sidelined when you sit here and like, <laughs> make po- po- if you're posting tweets all day, like you got to be exposed or like you get way too much enjoyment out of just sh- shit talking online. I've been saying life is a lot easier when you're already all in for, you know, six months now, seven months. So, I mean, I got to imagine that it's a m- majority of people just based on the sentiment we're seeing uh, on CT. I don't know. I feel like for, I don't know, maybe it's about half and half. I take it back because I feel like for every one bull post I see, I get another one that's just like pure depression. And I'm like, all right, like just, just allocate. Why are you waiting? If you think something's going to 10X, you have no business waiting for like a 10% move lower. Like just get in. Not financial advice at all. I'm a horrible trader. Yeah, I'd agree with that to some extent, but I also think like when you're sitting there looking at this stuff day in and day out, you can kind of drive yourself absolutely insane looking at price action and the industry moves so fast that I could definitely see yourself like overthinking it and waiting for, you know, lower prices. But um, any other uh, thoughts on this here? I just think from experience, watching everything rip and not having any exposure to it is probably more painful than actually losing money on something, which is why I got in. (laughs) The FOMO is real. I definitely agree. All right, everyone, let's take a moment to hear about MetaMask portfolio. If you're like me and Sam, managing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be so overwhelmingly complicated. That's why we're excited about MetaMask portfolio. All you have to do is connect your MetaMask wallet to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs in one place. You can easily buy, sell, swap, 
bridge and stake crypto assets at competitive rates all within the app. And you get to choose from a vetted list of providers. There's no more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all within one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Peep the link in the description of today's episode to get started now. Dan, you got some uh, governance updates for us this week? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we can uh, start things off. Adam Adam uh, always has pretty crazy tokenomic discussions or honestly just governance forums on the whole. But uh, right now they're discussing a proposal to lower the hard cap inflation. Uh, so they want to lower the max bound of the dynamic inflation from 20% to 10%. And the current inflation is sitting around 14%. So this would... Uh, uh, basically, right, if it were to be imp implemented, it would immediately reduce Adam's inflation by about 30%. And so compared to other proof-of-stake chains, the hub is like vastly overplaying for security by about two to three times because um, most chains are somewhere between the range of like five to seven percent of inflation. And so, you know, obviously this is a very heated discussion because it directly impacts the bottom line for validators. Um, and so like they're obviously going to be a little bit reluctant to just like reduce their you know, net, net income, that's a pretty understandable position for them. But the reality is, you know, if the hub is just like throwing tokens out the window for no particular reason, probably some reason to uh, kind of throttle that back and maybe reduce uh, the amount of security that they need to be, or the, the, reduce the security budget, essentially. Um, so, you know, we'll wait for Effort Capital to come back on and give us his full thoughts next week. But, you know, that is definitely worth something pointing out if you're going to see a 30% reduction in the inflation rate of Adam. Uh, and then we also have... Uh, Ibuko, which is the leading DEX on StarkNet by volume, they had a recent proposal to kind of uh, make a three million dollar or a three million token contribution from the DAO to collect uh, Uni tokens themselves. So basically, they're saying, "All right, we'll take on three million Uni tokens and provide you twenty percent uh, of the, our protocol's future governance token," which is a really, really interesting proposition. And so, I, I personally don't feel too strongly about this, but uh, Sam and, and Pipples, I know you guys both kind of have two different perspectives on here. So I'd love to get the breakdown. Yeah, I can start first here, to be honest. I've never used Ibuko, so I can't say I have like a super strong yes opinion, but I see all this drama going on in the Uniswap DAO and they have so many unique tokens in that treasury and token holders just have virtually zero rights. So I, I don't know, a treasury swap kind of makes sense to me. Plus you'd imagine in the next year or two, StarkNet will pick up a lot of steam as one of the few differentiated L2s um, and uh, a potential airdrop coming as well. So I kind of like it, but then again, like token holders really don't have that great of rights. So even if they do do like a treasury swap for like a future allocation thing, I don't know how much benefit it actually has, but the way I'm seeing this right now is just like, just try something. <laughs> and if this, if this uh, can, can accrue some value to the uni token sometime down the line, I think that's a win. So there's a couple things to unpack here. One is the founder of Abuko used to be a dev at Uniswap back in the day. And then he was an advisor to labs for a little while. So that's like the, the background of like why he popped up in the forum to ask for this. But I think it's a pretty bad deal for uni holders and just like the DAO in general, because it's basically just like they're getting, or Ibuko is getting like 3 million seed funding to fund operations for their decks on StarkNet that is not going to really benefit Uni at all. Um, another thing is Ibuko wants to be considered kind of like a core contributor to Uniswap, which is weird because although they're using like their own version of the Singleton contract on Starkware, like it's written in Cairo. So it's going to be kind of hard for them to like contribute as a core contributor to Uniswap if everything they did is in a different language, like I just don't really see the point of this. And then like further, like, all right, he wants 3 million uni tokens. He's going to use that to fund his operations, but like that's all going to be up to his discretion. Like there's nothing clarified of like, what's he actually going to spend it on? What's his projected spend? Like what a timeline is for a budget or anything. So I think there's just like a lot of red flags with the initial proposal. So it definitely needs to be hashed out more. I also come in and chime here. It's not like Starknet has like a thriving DeFi ecosystem. Just looking at DeFi Llama right now, they currently have 33 million in TVL. The top six protocols are JediSwap, MySwap, 
ZK Land 10k swap, Ikubo and Sif swap. I guess they have a really like strong hard on for like Star Wars memes. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like Uniswap is at the stage where they're big enough that they have sort of like dominance over the market in terms of spot taxes, at least in like the vast majority of ecosystems. And they're at the stage where like even if someone else does something like innovative, Uniswap can just like copy it, take it in house, and sort of like just price other people out of the competition. Kind of the same thing where like Amazon will like see like a popular product, they'll manufacture it themselves, and then they'll sell it themselves rather than letting like a third party uh, merchant like sell it on Amazon. And I feel like like this deal makes no sense for Uniswap, especially given their scale. They don't benefit a lot from it. I wonder if like some of the rationale though is like, hey, like Uniswap, like you want some exposure to the Starknet ecosystem. I don't even know if Uniswap is actually live on Starknet. So if they are, then this is an old point. But nonetheless, I feel like to not have to devote resources to building out something in a completely separate language and just having another team do it that already has 70% of DEX volume on that chain, it's kind of a good way to gain exposure. But definitely hear your guys' concerns with like, yeah, like <laughs> you're just going to give us these tokens and we have no idea what you're doing with them. You're probably just going to sell them and then fund yourself to sit on the couch for a while. Like definitely a real risk. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So those are some good points there. Just a really interesting development, though. I haven't seen a lot of like these token swaps go through, especially for you know larger DAOs like Uniswap. So I don't know. This could have started a new pre precedent if it is A, executed, and B, goes well. So it's so definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, another governance update we have is Aave for, uh, proposing to further increase the go borrow rate from 2.5% to 3%. Lots to think about here because... if. <laughs> So Go launched in, uh, I think, July, June or July timeframe, roughly earlier this summer. And it has greatly struggled, struggled from a peg perspective. So right now it's trading at about 96.6 and has just really been down only since launch. They used an artificially low uh, borrow rate when they launched. I think it was around 1, 1.5%. And what that did was create some great initial demand. But everybody, what they did was, you know, let's say you borrowed against ETH or whatever your asset was. You'd uh, take out your debt position in Go and then immediately sell that on the open market and just either like loop the strategy or um, just get rid of your tokens and go execute some other thing. Like, like if I wanted to you know, take some leverage out and go long ETH, I would open a position, borrow some Go against my ETH collateral and then sell the Go for more ETH. And now I'm holding an, an increased amount of ETH and I have more exposure. And so... What this did was just destroy the peg. And so they already raised the interest rate once, and now they have another proposal to go from 25 to 3%. They also launched without a PSM. And so the PSM is great for upside peg protection, but honestly, it like doesn't have a huge impact on the downside peg protection. Really, how you solve downside peg protection is like having a robust ecosystem for your token that creates demand for the token. Like you need people to want to hold the token and not just dump it into a liquidity pool. It's kind of like this really hard problem you're trying to solve, but that is ultimately kind of the goal here. Uh, and so the question here is like, what went wrong for Aave? Like how did they really slip up? Because if you look at somebody like Curve, who also recently launched a stable coin earlier this summer, the Curve bag has like never dropped below like 99.5-ish. So a whole three cents higher than what Curve... Um, excuse me, what Go is trading at today. Uh, and if you look at like what they're doing, well, they have a robust ecosystem of incentives to create that exterior demand and say, hey, like, you know, go put your assets in this liquidity pool. Don't just go dump them or something like that. Um, you know, pair them with a, another stable coin and earn, and earn yield. And things like Conic that sit on top of the Curve ecosystem really help promote that. They launched with uh, their AMOs, so they're what they call peg keepers. So yes, that's much better for upside peg protection, but you're like launching with a more complete product. Um, and then lastly, they have a much more uh, robust interest rate mechanism that relies on no governance and is just based on market market forces and certain select parameters based on uh, some of the, like initial risk parameters about the asset that you're borrowing against. Um, and things like the, the curve price, the CRV USD price actually plays, plays a role in the interest rate that the user pays. So you see like these two different perspectives and ultimately it's like, all right, well, what does go like, how do how do you fix go? And Ave is doing a ton of work going into this. Like they've created uh, a liquidity committee with, a, which is basically like a multi-sig of some community participants around like, all right. You know, we're closely, closely integrated with both Curve and Balancer. How do we use V-Curve or V-Bal or, or some of the yield aggregators like Convex or Aura that sit on top of those to like really kind of 
create the deepest liquidity we can to help promote peg strength and things like that. They're now they're talking about increasing the interest rate again for a, an additional time, right? Because you have an artificially low interest rate. People are going to like loop uh, SDI or SFRAX yields from you. And again, that's just going to all get sold back in and negatively impact the peg. So they're, they're kind of going about the right steps, but uh, so far, like really, really lacking in demand. If we look at, you know, total demand for, again, comparing Curve and Aave, uh, Curve USD is at about 125 million uh, of borrowing. And we see about 25 million for, for Go itself. So definitely need to see some uh, increase in, in the peg stability before you're going to see a lot of traction there. But so far, rough start for Aave. Yeah, I think SDI and SFRAX, as you said, just completely like flipped the stablecoin landscape on its head as we knew it before those those two products like kind of came to market. And I expect that to continue, honestly. As a side note, I just think it's so interesting that the U.S. government is basically indirectly injecting like hundreds of thousands of dollars a day into DeFi. Like that is so cool and, and like so bullish on a longer term time frame, especially as that scales. And yeah, I, I'd put myself in the hot seat for what I expected Go to do. I thought that was going to be a really successful product and it's pretty much completely flopped front on its face. Their only hope is to be a third mover and launch SGO. <laughs> just try to do what everyone else is doing. That's but, a good point, though. I mean, they're going to have to do some sort of off-change asset strategy or RWA strategy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, Canto rolled out an RWA strategy before Ave did. And they're moving to the Polygon CDK, baby. Does anyone know what's good with Ave Arc? I haven't heard anything about that. It wasn't that supposed to be like their institutional grade, like I don't money. think Ave Arc gained like any traction at all even though they launched it i want to say like more than a year ago like i think it got barely got any like assets or tvo in it um i'm not sure if it's entirely shut down uh but it seems like more or less dead right now and i feel like compound also launched like an institutional like borrowing solution probably one year ago too and yeah that also got shut down like pretty early on this year at the end of last year so all of these like institutions only like Borrowing, lending borrowing protocols like i don't think they've gained any traction and i want to say that most of these institutions or like hedge funds are still doing their lending and borrowing with just like normal like desks such as like amber group falcon x etc they're not doing it on chain yeah i'm confused as to why compound is still even operating like i don't know a soul who's using it but there's there's money in there and they're mining the token but i mean now that super state is a thing like they should just deprecate the whole thing. Go start something new. That might be like a um, Justin Sun place of activity. I think that might be a lot of the TVL. I'm totally like making that up off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that's where most of the TVL comes from. I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, continuing on on the idea of stable coins, protocol specific stable coins and, and their power in DeFi, uh, SFRAX is up to 40 million in TVL just a week or so after launch. And SDI is last I looked about 1.6 billion, uh, which is insane. Like to your point, Sam, like that is there's material demand in the middle of a bear market for a product that will get you, uh, you know, that that treasury rate yield. So that's that's pretty cool to see. And uh, a little bit of alpha, something to watch out for in the governance forums is Curve is looking to add uh, SDI and SFRAX collateral to their lending market. So you'll be able to execute that looping strategy. Um, there's actually a vote to basically they're going to use a curve pool as the oracle for that. And so they're deepening liquidity in the SDI CRV USD pool right now. And then that will become the liquidity or excuse me, the oracle for the SDI collateral. Um, and so right now there's a vote up to uh add a gauge to that pool for curve. And then you'll see the incentives roll through liquidity deepen, and then likely the asset will get listed uh, as collateral. So definitely something to keep an eye out there from a governance perspective. But lastly, on the governance front, we have uh, Polygon actually migrating from Matic to Pole. Uh, I think the launch is slated for October 25th, which is the Wednesday of this week when the episode will go live. So trying to do a little bit of foresight here and see into the future. So, uh, you know, don't come after us with the pitchforks if that doesn't end up happening. But that looks like what the game plan will be. Uh, it's PIP 26 that suggests increasing the validator rewards by 70 million from 130 to 200 million between now and July 2024. Uh, so that 50 million increase to 101 million uh, the following year. Or excuse me, 50, another 50 million increase the following year from 101 
to 150 million. Um, so, uh, Sam, I know you've been paying a lot of attention to the Polygon uh, and their recent uh, development with the ZKVM and their interop layer and all that. So, well, how do you think this is going to impact the the future of the Polygon ecosystem? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think it's bullish. I think this is like a necessary migration just to kind of like get a new narrative going for for Matic and the Polygon ecosystem. Just to kind of clarify, PIP twenty six is actually increasing the scheduled validator rewards slash like incentives from now until July 2024 by 70 million because I think a while back they had reduced it and now they're trying to like kind of get it back up to like where it was because they want to make sure to incentivize the proper behavior and then another 50 million the following year is this part of that like original five-year plan that Matic had for like when because Matic was a hard cap token and now Paul's not but are they going to keep the original five-year plan for validator incentives and then like this is the schedule that you're talking about them them altering yeah yeah exactly that so i think they just want to make sure that they can incentivize you know enough validators to want to join but unfortunately that does come at the detriment of, of token holders through extra dilution i don't think it's necessarily like the worst thing i mean you're you know we just talked about adam trying to get from 20 percent to 10 percent annual inflation so when we're talking like these numbers on a 10 billion token supply it's a lot a lot less <laughs> uh so you know the problems could be bigger but it's just cool in general to see this migration occur considering like how much of a pioneer polygon was in scaling the evm like yes it's a side chain they get a bunch of crap for how they market it but i do think had polygon not been there a lot of other all l1s would have picked up like a lot more traction back in the last bull run so i do think polygon's extremely ethereum aligned uh, and also like they just started taking governance a lot more seriously. So they just launched a security council, basically giving them the ability to do emergency upgrades with no time lock, assuming they have 10 of 13 signers. And the list of 13 signers is like pretty much like some of the top security people in all of Web3. So I don't know. I think they've, uh, you know, they're on the right track and I'm excited to see where Polygon goes from here, especially once they migrate that uh, side chain over to a Validium. I think there's two things that I want to see. Polygon hasn't had like the most thriving De DeFi ecosystem um, in the grand scheme of things. And I'm not sure if this like interop or aggregator layer will sort of enable like novel use cases such as like distributed AMMs. But I think there's a potential chance for them to sort of stand out with cool like DeFi protocols that are only possible on uh, Polygon, so I was going to say Solana, just because Solana sort of like uh, made that their narrative. Um, and another thing I want to see is obviously the token Paul itself is meant to be like a multi-utility token, right? You can use it for like um, stake just like to secure the Polygon network, you can use it for like the sequencer network, the prover network, whatever. I, I'm really curious as to see how much adoption that gets from day one or if it's even actually ready, I'm not really sure. Um, but I think that may be indicated for like how successful Eigenlayer may be, like how much people want to use like one token as collateral for like multiple use cases. It's like a test bid, I guess, for like restake DEF. That's pretty interesting, actually. I haven't thought about it from that lens before, but yeah, I, I like briefly mentioned this, but I want to expand on it. And one of like the key differences from the token migration from Matic to Paul is uh, the, the fact that they removed the hard cap. So it's now can be used as a staking incentive driver uh, sort of in, into perpetuity. I think there's a there's an inflation cap on it, so it can't just like you know one year elect to just emit you know 100 inflation. But uh, they did get rid of the hard cap, which is kind of interesting because you know it is a one to one token swap, just with like some minor tweaks to tokenomics. And honestly, like I I'm sure that there's some hate out there on them changing some things like this. But you know they launched that token in what 2017, I would guess. Like things have changed. There's been a lot of research done on what a token should look like. And, you know, the team has been building for the last five or so years. Yeah, they, I, I would want them to be able to kind of modify what that token looks like and what it can do and what it can be used for uh, to kind of build out the most robust ecosystem that they can. And, and that's ultimately what I believe they're trying to do. So I'm pretty excited about their vision. Um, I, I'm excited about, honestly, the ZK ecosystems as a whole. I think there's, there's a lot there. I don't know when we'll get it, as I think the tech still needs some some improvements to really scale. Like we haven't seen any hyper chains really come into the ZK sync ecosystem yet that are like, you know, really blow your socks off by any means. Um, and even the early campaigns for who Polygon is going after to kind of build out uh, on the Polygon CDK is, is kind of in the same boat, right? Like Canto is coming over. Uh, they were pr uh, kind of like campaigning to get uh, Cello over, which is like a, a smaller L2. And it's like, all right, you know, like, 
those definitely aren't the most attractive chains by any means. But what's interesting is because of the, how the interop layer works, like everybody that's opting into the same interop layer is going to help reduce the cost uh, of, of proving for each other. And so like ultimately that comes back and benefits the Polygon ZK EVM. So you kind of have this like little flywheel effect of like, hey, well, if we're all in this ecosystem, it's cheaper for us. And so it's going to be like this race to see like, all right, who can like actually get the uh, the most attractive set of L2s to kind of come join their network. So it'll be fun to watch. Yeah, I agree. I just add one more thing that I think Polygon's dead if they don't, you know, somehow develop some sort of ecosystem fund. Like you just can't compete with arbitrum optimism etc being able to hand out token incentives and bring users over to your chain i just i can't get over that point like even if you look at gains network that was a polygon native protocol that migrated over to uh arbitrum as well they have two versions live every single day it's 85 percent of volume on arbitrum they literally just got a stip worth i can't even remember it's in the five to ten million dollar range like if you're not getting that on polygon like wh why wouldn't you be on arbitrum you know what i mean so that's the one other the one other caveat. I would disagree. I think um, Polygon's kind of served as a testament is like, don't blow up and just keep going on and you'll be fine. Like being so old and still being in the game and having processed a lot more like settlement than something like Stellar or like Neo, like those kinds of tokens, like Polygon is still here. And like, even though DeFi appetite is pretty bad right now it doesn't even have to be defied for like polygon to succeed i mean they've got like the starbucks odyssey thing going on um there's just like plenty of other i guess they kind of have like a brand even if like crypto native people don't think so like they do have a recognizable brand and people know they can go to polygon to like try something out in crypto yeah, I guess another counterpoint there would be the interop layer as a whole, right? Like if they can get some moat liquidity moat around the interop layer, then there may be some external drivers for like why you'd want to be within this ecosystem, which like, yeah, maybe you can go to Arbitrum, get a stip, get some free money and get some short term usage. But maybe I need to be in this app with everybody else that has, you know, this like this hub of liquidity around it to really get traction. I don't know. I'm spitballing here, but. Uh, it'll be that's why I'm just like really excited about the idea of this like interop layer. I think that like you know, blocker research needs to do an, a, like an in depth analysis on that because A, I want to read it, but B, it'll be really cool. Yeah, I know Sandeep as well, just as a, another point, has tweeted on Twitter like as a reply to someone else saying, like, What do you mean we're not going to do an airdrop? Who said that? So, like, I, I think I, who knows if he's just hyping this shit up, but uh, nonetheless, he's aware that like he needs to get people farming. <laughs> What's up, everyone? As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize Hexens, the premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review of the new Polygon ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis in cybersecurity consulting. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. There has been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history. So it's safe to say that your team has a lot on the line. Don't skip out, take your security seriously and choose Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership. And you can reach out to Hexens at hexens.io or find them on the ground at DevConnect. Without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Time for a little hot seat, cool throne. What do we say? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Pibbles, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I'll come in with the hot seat, and it's a name that we seldom talk about on here, but it's uh, Polkadot. They have a little over $400 million worth of DOT unlocking tomorrow on like the 25th, and then I think like there's another wave in January. And um, so basically two years ago, people were locking up DOT in the parachain auctions, which was like the ultimate hype machine. And... Um, so they locked them for like two years and probably like the average cost basis of someone who locked dot back then was around like $25. And like now it's at like $4. It's kind of been moving the past few days. But um, so I think it's like five bill circulating market cap. You've got like 400 ish mil about to unlock. I don't really think there's enough liquidity to like, handle a mass dump of like 400 mil dot 
Um, open interest is sitting around like 30 mil, so not even 10% of this upcoming unlock. And I'm just expecting like a lot of volatility on DOT for the next few days. And so like uh, at surface level, it's hot seat, like, oh no, DOT's going to go to zero. But then if you look further, like probably the most entertaining outcome is going to be some sort of massive short squeeze where DOT rallies like a ton NFA, but uh, we'll see. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this. I was uh, scrolling through just looking at activity on some of these parachains and like, man, it's like the, the apps deployed over there is no different than like the shittiest L2s. It's just like Dex, 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 lending protocol, nothing else. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, I know there was some contention around like, I don't know. I guess this takes me, I'm totally derailing the conversation now, but when uh, compound was th talking about like building out, uh, in the polka dot ecosystem and then like it never came to fruition, but they're toying around with like the app chain idea. It's like, what if they like decide, you know what, screw it. We're going to execute on that anyways. Like, I wonder if that would have changed the game at all. Like, would there be more people who would have said, Oh, well, compounds doing it. So like, let's go try to do it or go, go play with it. Uh, and then one of the things that I always see touted about polka dot is the, you know, there's so many developers going on over like there's so much development activity, so many developers. Uh, so I went over to to token terminal and pulled up their core developers chart and like, sure enough, you know, polka dots in the top five, but I've never put a lot of credence into that metric because I mean, Cardano is sitting at the, at number one by a wide margin. And like, you're not going to tell me that there's more development work going on on Cardano than like Ethereum mainnet or the Ethereum and its L2s. Like it's just not true. So I don't know. I just, that's like the number one metric I always see touted for poly or excuse me for a polka dot. It's just like a hard metric for me to get behind. It's just really easy to fake. And you know, if some dude's just pushing a readme update on the, on the GitHub, like that's not development. Yeah. It, it's probably really someone just like going in there and changing the font size, <laughs> different code. And they're just like doing it multiple times a day. I'd also add that like the real nail in the coffin for Polkadot was never, was it called the Nomad Bridge? Whenever that got hacked, um, Moonbeam, Moon River, whatever it was called, was like the number one successful parachain and like supposed to kind of be like the prodigal child of the entire DOT ecosystem. And that bridge hack just like killed it, like completely massacred any chance of Polkadot DeFi. So it's it's just been real bad since then. They also took forever on their, I think they call it XCMP, cross-chain messaging protocol. They were like building that forever. And I, I haven't even gotten an update on that. So I'm not sure if that's live, but I feel like that kind of hurt too with Cosmos having native IBC. But as you were talking, Pibbles, I did pull up Levitas and saw that the funding rate is like negative 33% annualized and open interest is like doubled over the last 24 hours. So that is kind of an interesting setup. This is going to be one to watch over the, the coming days for sure. I think my reaction with all the facts stayed out was that like, holy crap, like how many billions of dollars in like DOT were like locked up for the parachain auctions. And I think my first reaction when I learned about parachain auctions was like, why would you only have like one month? You're like fundamentally limiting how much your business or your network can make. And it just made zero sense to me when I first like learned about Polkadot and like the entire like architecture. It, it still doesn't really make sense today. <laughs> Yeah, I think the idea behind that was basically let's try and lock up as much supply as we can for two years. So that way our bags vest when everyone else can't sell. <laughs> if I had to guess. Hey, supply sinks were hot. I mean, ETH burn, baby. Got to get a narrative going for your token. I guess counterpoint to my developer's comment was, you know, let's let's take that number at face value and assume it to be true. Then that just takes me back to crypto as a whole's problem of distribution matters. And like, even if you have great tech, you got to get people to use it and you got to be building things that actually like are useful. So I don't know. I'll also add that for like active developers count, there's probably like a, I don't know if this is the correct term, but like a power law distribution, like a top like 0 0.01 developer probably has like a thousand times more impact on your ecosystem than like the other like 99.99% combined and that's definitely like very true in crypto like for example like arbitrum and gmx like sure maybe they have like ten thousand developers but if they didn't have like the five developers for gmx would arbitrum be like anywhere as close to like how big they are today 
I don't think so. That's a great point. I think it's even more true for protocols rather than like uh, like applications rather than you know base layers, right? So something like Curve, you know, Mitch and Fiddy are like how what percentage of activity on that GitHub? Like, you know, I, I'd take them over a team of a hundred random devs any day of the week, and most engineers would agree with that. They're like, yeah, I'd rather have one or two a small team of like powerhouse engineers than a large team of average engineers. The small team or the single person will always outcompete. Uh, the, the larger group, there's just, you introduce inefficiencies and I don't know if you talk to some engineers, you start to learn that like those dudes just like to operate. It's just, it's a different brain. It's a different brain. Sam, who you got in the hot seat or cool drone this week? I've got scroll mainnet launch, uh, in the cool throne. You probably could have put it in the hot seat as well. It's only got a little bit over 10 million of TVL. I checked out some of the dApps on DeFi Llama that are, that are live. And it's once again, just a list of 10 different DEXs. So people are just swapping shit coins on scroll with nothing else to do. Uh, they also previously raised at a $1.8 billion, uh, valuation. I don't know, man. I mean, I'm happy that they finally, you know, launched everyone. I think their team is legitimate. I think they care about scaling Ethereum. I think they care a lot and deeply about crypto. So very happy for the team. But just right now, like between Polygon, ZKVM, ZK Sync and Scroll, like they're all lagging. Like you can combine the TBL of all of those and they don't even equal base. And that doesn't even have a token and ZK Sync and Scroll are obviously going to be farmed. So I don't know. I guess I'm kind of curious to see when... ZK EVMs actually kind of find their product market fit slash niche and, and start to get in the narrative because everyone was talking about this for over a year. Now they're all alive and no one's using them. Like I have only bridged over to one of them personally. I'm curious if you guys have even bridged to one of them. I think um, the sole utility of any sort of like ZK EVM is to raise a ton of money so that you can get things like uh, scroll sauce, this hot sauce that's branded as scroll. Like, I think that's ultimate use case. How did you have that ready? <laughs> it's actually on my desk. Oh, that's great. That's incredible. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I got, I got like, okay, so Arbitrum and Optimism are obviously crushing all these uh, ZK rollups and activity metrics right now. But they also had a, they got to latch on to some of the bull market growth, right? So like they had developers come in like holy shit like we can build on a cheaper version of ethereum like that's awesome let's get in there and do it whereas you know some of the zk rollups that launched within the last 12 anything that launched within the last 12 months like you're not getting any love from any new wave of users or builders so you kind of like trudging through the dirt so to me it's not about now but it's about what will what will happen in the next you know 12 to 12 to 24 months and that's really where i think there is the potential for something more interesting to happen again because you create these ecosystems that can benefit off of other chains in a way that like base cannot impact, like can't be useful. There's no interop between base and optimism, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Or Arbitrum is really just this one L2 that's like kind of siloed within its own uh, canister where yes, it can like, have some L3s that live on top of it, but that's still a bit different. Whereas ZK rollups can have like this hyper bridging or this interop layer uh, that's just allows for like richer communications between uh, L2s that utilize the same smart contract bridge and the same proving circuits. So I, I'm really excited to kind of see where that direction goes, but I, there's no, there's no sugarcoating it. That's not here today. And like, we haven't seen any of that usage today. I want to add a few more things here. First of all, I think that valuation that it previously raised that is like completely ridiculous. Like there's, it doesn't justify the valuation by any means of um, second thing is I think scroll has done like a pretty poor job at like BD or like just getting their like narrative out there. They're just hiring for a head of growth now. And it kind of feels like it's way too late to be hiring a head of growth. And every other ecosystem has like a very prominent researcher or like head of growth, head of DeFi, CEO that like everyone just kind of knows on Twitter. Like if you think about who that is for scroll, it's not that obvious. I guess like Chogu, but like he's just debating semantics with people on Twitter for like 365 days a year. I'm not sure that counts as like getting your narrative and being like a spokesperson for the entire ecosystem. So yeah, I mean like not a, not an impossible task, um, but definitely like a lot, a lot of work for whoever they hire to fill their head of growth role. Is Ren looking for jobs? <laughs> I just saw like Sandy Pung post on Twitter. I don't think I even follow her. <laughs> I'm just messing. I yeah. want to take that job though. 
many such cases, many such cases of great tech and questionable, like a question mark on distribution. I think what's really going to happen over like the next 12 months is how all the money flocked from all L1s to all these L2s in private rounds and fundraising. I think the all L1s are all going to have their day and like see major applications that are successful that aren't finance related at all. And then like once everyone starts flooding back into the all L1 trade, then maybe the L2s see something. But um, I'm way more bullish all L1s right now. Which all L1s? Definitely, like obviously Solana, um, Near is really cool. I just published a report about that, but they're doing some really good stuff fixing the distribution problem. And they have like actual apps that are using it without the actual end users knowing they're doing anything with crypto. I also think like Aptos just launched like some game that's apparently picking up traction right now. So Aptos activity is up and then Sui is also going to be a really good one. Um, I don't think I'm a fan of say, I will say that, but I think there's a lot of upside in all these other ones. Just curious too, while we're on the topic, how do you think the, I guess the alt layer ones from last cycle perform outside of Sol? So like AVAX on, I'm blanking actually right now to think of another, but I don't know. There just seems to be so little going on over there and like they, they're like screaming into the echo chamber and just no one cares. <laughs> Well, I think like I'm definitely team near because near cons coming up soon. And like you really can't fade the founders of near and like how much money they're sitting on. Like they can do whatever they want. Um, Avalanche, like they really tried with Stars Arena and then it got exploited like three times. Um, but like apparently there's like that um that like private DeFi subnet or whatever that Wisdom Tree is allegedly using. So like Maybe they have something niche there. Fair take, fair take. All right, Ren, who you got in the hot seat or cool throne this week? All right, I actually got two. I got one in the hot seat. I'm going to get uh, to the cool zone one later. So I have Celestia in the hot seat. They recently concluded their air job, I think, last Thursday. Um, pretty shocking numbers, actually, for what is meant to be hyped as one of like the most exciting like infrastructure projects slash air jobs in the past few months. Only 32.8% of uh, people claim their Celestia tokens. And I'd like to clarify that there's like three buckets that they airdrop to. So one, are, um, early adopters of roll up. So that's probably like normies like you and me. And they got 2% of the total token supply. Another 2% went to stakers and IBC relayers on Cosmos and Osmosis. So they probably all went to it and everyone claimed there. And the last two were basically devs that have been contributing to various ecosystems. Um, if you have a like super big GitHub repo, if you're a big, like a big modular guy, um, you probably got part of the 2% allocated, but yeah, 32.8% claim is a pretty shocking number. It's a good thing that they distributed all of the unclaimed tokens to all of those that claim. So people probably got two to three X their initial allocation, but that muted demand to me kind of signified two things, right? Either the first being that crypto still has a lot, a lot of US users and none of them managed to bypass sort of like the VPN restriction. And apparently it was like a quite a bit harder to do so than like bypassing your normal like VPN restriction from claiming an airdrop. Um, so I guess that's probably one thing to take note of. Um, the other thing is that maybe there's just like not that much excitement for the airdrop, especially considering that I think most people only got like a hundred to two hundred dollars. Like that doesn't move the mark. And especially like if you're just like a normie being a DJ on uh, L2, like you you really could not care less about like modular blockchains, like modular like data availability execution. You're gonna be like, what is this? Two hundred dollars? Like I'm not gonna bother, right? Um. So pre-launch futures have it trading at 2 billion. You can trade on AVO. There's probably another perfect change that I'm blanking on. And its previous raise was at $1 billion um, in October, 2022. My take is that I don't think it justifies that valuation right now. Um, I'm not that excited about modular blockchains, to be honest, especially with like the proliferation of app chains within roll-up stacks. Like, I, I, I just don't see it yet uh perhaps i'm missing something but yeah that's my takeaway for now i'm gonna feel so vindicated when celestia launches 
and it's like a complete letdown and all the threads over the past two years have all been for nothing. If you want to know how to get zero X pimples to hate you, it's, it's write a thread. It's, it's actually that simple. Hey, I'm the writer of some of those threads, but it's from the Blockworks research account. So <laughs> I feel like I get a pass. No, I agree though here, Ren. I feel like 1 billion seems pretty ridiculous, but I do think that the FDV of the token will be 2 to 3 billion, best guess. I don't know. What's it trading at on AVO right now, if you happen to recall? Yeah, so AVO's at $2 billion. Um, oh, so like okay. Double its last phase at $1 billion. Okay, yeah. I definitely attribute it to just making it super hard to claim for VPN people. And the fact that 33% of people claimed, I bet 20% of that is people who are witty enough to get around the VPN wall through some you know niche method that people were sharing in Telegram chat. So I don't know, kind of depressing that 90% of crypto usage, in my opinion, is probably US users. It's going to be really exciting to see if uh, Eclipse does really well as an L two on Ethereum using the SVM and using Celestia for DA because if they pull that off and like let's just say they absolutely crush it and for one reason or another that gets attributed to using Celestia for DA that'll get really really interesting right because if you are an L two today and you can cut your cost by ninety five percent by switching from Ethereum to DA to Celestia DA. At what point does your DAO start pressuring you in to do this? Or what? at what point does the, you know, maybe it's a more centralized chain, like, and maybe what at what point does the centralized team start pushing for this? Or do investors start pushing for this? Like, when does it make sense to say, maybe I break some ETH alignment and uh, actually go use Celestia for DA? Uh, so I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see who else is gets, gets over there to kind of, like, prove the Celestia use case. Uh, but Eclipse has definitely got, you know, a very interesting shot at it for sure. I'll chime in here on uh, Dan's point of like pressuring your DAO or protocol to like move over to over to Celestia for DA. So last Friday, um, Celestia themselves launched this thing called Blobstream. I haven't looked into it too much, but it basically allows you to stream your DA in like a modular fashion to Ethereum mainnet. Um, I'm I'm just gonna read the tweet here. Um, so Sync Labs also announced Blobstream X, right? It's a zk Lite client base implementation of Blobstream, which streams Celestia's high-throughput verifiable DA layer to rollups settled on Ethereum mainnet. Um, so it seems like there may be some like middle ground. You may not have to choose like either or, and maybe there's like the best of both worlds that developers can tap into. But as like a standalone solution, uh, just off the top of my head, it's like, it's hard to see again, like a huge amount of like outsized adoption. You've also got to get enough people running light nodes, right? Because that's the whole scalability model of, of a DA layer is that like the more light nodes you have, it kind of logarithmically scales. So I don't know. I'm a little bit bearish on the idea of people actually wanting to to do that. But um, the Celestia team, like Nick White, are, have been doing a really good job marketing it at the very least, taking all the pictures of running a, a light node on <laughs> random places on random devices like a Game Boy or something, which has been cool. Yeah. All right. Um, for the cool drone this week, I have Circle. I feel like Circle has been like launching a lot of like cool, exciting stuff. Uh, just last month, they launched like Circle Research and they launched their Perimeter Protocol, which is sort of their like real world asset protocol securitization, blah blah blah. Um, but last week they launched Circle Gas Station. So this is basically Circle's really strong move into account abstraction. What it is, is that Circle has a gas station that handles sourcing and transferring gas tokens so developers can focus on building their apps, right? Basically, a developer can define gas policies, manage sponsorship rules, the number of transactions that they want to sponsor, and Circle will basically pay for you, right? Um, so whatever users pay, Circle will pay for you through the account abstraction and like a paymaster contract. But interestingly, Circle is charging a 5% convenience fee onto that. Um, and it's billed at the end of the month. You don't need to like stream it on like a per transaction basis, which I thought was a very interesting model. Um, and yeah, Circle also recently launched programmable wallets, I think probably three or four months ago. So I'm not sure how much adoption wallet as a service has gotten, but I think account abstraction has definitely gotten like a lot more adoption than people think. If you go check out some like Dune dashboards, like paymaster contracts actually have like a surprising amount of activity um, ever since like ERC4337 launched. And so I think Circle's one is really exciting. One 
outlier sort of way that I think I see this contributing a lot to circles like top line is if USDC obviously is like a multi-chain token, especially with CCTP, chances are you're going to be using USDC on multiple blockchains. And so in the future, if you launch a wallet and you want to sort of have give your users the option to transfer USDC to multiple chains to CCTP, can Circle basically use the gas station for that and charge an extra 5% on that, right? And so 5% of gas fees may not seem like much, but I would bet over time, especially if stuff such as like SAP, SAP, like using USCC, that kind of stuff really takes off. And if you're like an institutional like logistics client, right, you're, you're not going to be wanting to use like USCC in a wallet, you want all of that abstracted away, like 5% on all of those like transfer and gas fees could probably make a lot of money for Circle in the long term. Just imagine being SAP though, and like getting your monthly bill saying they integrated this this month and you're like, okay, nice. It's only like a few thousand dollars. And then in the middle of a bull run, it's like 30 grand. And they're like, what the hell's going on here? Like, <laughs> I don't know. This seems like more of a headline in my opinion and something that won't get that much traction to be completely honest, but hopefully I'm wrong because I definitely commend Circle for trying their best to make the UX a little bit better. Yeah, I'm all for abstracting away crypto from crypto apps. Like, I, I think that's definitely net bullish. And uh, it's interesting though, that, like this is running on Polygon actually, which is, I, I don't know, I found that pretty interesting. I wonder, I wonder if they're going to keep it there or move it somewhere else once it rolls into a Validium. Like, I don't know. They Circle does a, an interesting job of like building out developments across many different chains, which I find quite interesting. Like they're not just like all in on building on ETH mainnet or 1L2 or Solana. Like they're kind of a little bit of everywhere. Yeah, uh, I'll add on to that Solana. Sorry, Circle recently announced CCTP on Solana testnet. Um, so it seems like that's coming live soon. I think CCTP is also coming to Noble like really, really soon. So like Circle is definitely leaning, leaning in very heavily into like a multi-chain future and like supporting developers, so to say. Um, with that, I think the 5% convenience fee ties pretty well into a Uniswap interface fee. So I'm going to pass it over to you, Dan. I was just getting ready to use the same segue there. That's beautiful. But yeah, egregious. How dare Circle charge 5% for their interface? Um, no, I'm kidding. I, uh, I've got Uniswap Labs on the hot seat this week for the community's reaction to their interface fee. So quick TLDR and some statistics around this. Uh, there's a 0.15% fee on all swaps that go through the official interface. So it's going to be Uniswap X, uh, the Uniswap front end that you'd go to like the traditional front end that you're used to using. Um, and I believe the mobile app as well. And so in about six-ish days, they've done 280K in fees, which annualizes to roughly about $15 million of uh, total fee revenue. And that's in the middle of a bear market, folks. So like, uh, you could easily see double that uh, once things start heating up and there's more transaction activity that's really just happening on chain. And people were really, really fired up about this. But like, hey, like you're charging your users for the benefit of Uniswap Labs and none of this goes back to token holders. Uh, but the reality is like, the person that is using a Uniswap front end is like provably price insensitive. They do not care the price that they're getting on their execution, because if they did care, they would not be using the Uniswap front end. You'd be using an aggregator. And it's important to note that the fee only applies to a certain subset of tokens, right? So this is going to be like a couple stable coins and ETH and wrapped ETH, and it doesn't like wrapping from ETH to wrapped ETH doesn't cost anything or stablecoin to stablecoin swaps doesn't cost anything. So like the large driver here is definitely the ETH and USDC pair. Um, and if you're going to swap ETH USDC and you're hitting the Uniswap front end, like you literally do not care the price you're going to get. Like if, if you're paying an extra 0.15%, you don't even know it. You never even cared. Uh, and so the, where that activity is kind of coming from on it, because it's across all chains where Uniswap front ends are deployed, 230 of the 280k is from Ethereum, and then another 35 of that is from Arbitrum, and some of the other L2s kind of are quite small, actually, in comparison to those two. And so the Uniswap universal router, which is what the front end will hit, uh, is the vast majority of this volume, with Uniswap X coming in second. And then there's an interesting case for the the, the single largest fee a user paid was $4,000, a little, little over $4,000, on what was a $2.7 million swap from ETH to USDT. 
And I think that is absolutely wild that somebody was making this transaction and just pulled up the Uniswap front end with $2.7 million of ETH and was like, boom, I'm going to make this swap. So they ended up paying an extra $4,000 in fees and they got sandwiched. So, so absolutely brutal. Like if you're moving that kind of, uh, that kind of size, like A, you need to be using an aggregator and B, you need to be using something that'll protect you from MEV, uh, like a flashbots endpoint. So another thing to think about there, but the large uproar was really centered around the fact that most people felt that there was a huge chasm between Uniswap labs, equity holders, and then uni token holders. And that's definitely true. The incentives aren't aligned one-to-one, but I don't think that they're as far off as people really make them seem. And like they make labs out to be this like really ill-intentioned group that is really only extracting value from uni token holders and giving it to equity holders. That said, there is no doubt that the Uniswap Labs team has a duty to their shareholders to maximize the shareholder value. Like that's what they need to do. However, I think Uniswap, the protocol, plays a very pivotal role in achieving that goal that Uniswap Labs has. And sure, they could be successful if Uniswap protocol died tomorrow, but their likelihood of being successful probably drops by about 97%. And so because of that, like, yes, I do think that they need to create the best protocol that can ultimately return value to token holders. I just don't think that's today because the debate is like, you know, the community has been talking about turning on the Uniswap protocol level fee switch forever. But all that does is take revenue away from LPs who are already getting kicked in the teeth. Like LPing is a wildly negative EV experience for a vast majority of users. And a lot of this liquidity comes from, you know, what, 10, 15 different LPs. I promise you that Uniswap Labs is talking to these LPs and those LPs don't want to give up their fees. So do you really want to go piss off the seven to 10 people that are supplying liquidity to your protocol? And if you do and they leave, then you don't have a protocol anymore. So you don't have future fee revenue to get. And there's been some good studies done around like hypothesizing how you'd go about turning on the fee switch and which pools you would use and like which chains you'd start on and like really kind of testing the waters. But that's all you're doing is testing the waters. Like you, it doesn't make sense to me at all to say, Hey, we know LPing, you're going to lose 5% while you do this, but us, the Dow, we want to get a couple more percent out of you. And we actually want to turn on our own fee switch. So instead of losing 5%, now you're going to lose 9%. Like that doesn't make any sense. So if you want to be returning fee revenue to your token, you got to be like, there needs to be excess cash to distribute because even if you diverted this, you know, 15 or so million dollar uh, front end fee switch to the token holders instead of the Uniswap Labs team, that'd equate to like a roughly half percent dividend rate, basically. So what's like, what's more valuable to the protocol itself, a half percent dividend or reinvesting in labs who is incentivized to make the best protocol possible. And to me, it's like very, very clear that you should be reinvesting in the developers rather than in kind of like building towards future growth. And like, there's a lot of things that the future growth can look like. It can be, you know, enhancing an existing product or building a new service line or funding more research into LP profitability, for example, literally anything. And so to me, it's very clear, but the rest of the community does not feel this way. It's, it's kind of a controversial take to say you should reinvest in growth rather than distribute to the token holders. So. I mean, yes, I see the chasm here and I see why people are upset that there's this difference in, like Uniswap Labs is not really maximally aligned with the token holders because of the equity. And I see how that's like a fundamentally flawed model, but I don't think it's like the be all end all. And it's like, oh, well, Uniswap's done. Like they could go build some ancillary product that's funded by this $15 million of revenue from the interface fee switch that feeds more value to the Uniswap protocol. And then that's how the fee switch gets turned on. Like that's a very probable outcome. And everybody seems kind of like blind to that acknowledgement. So I don't know, rant over, but I just don't think it's the end of the world that people are making it out to be. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, if you think about like before the interface fee switch to date, Uniswap Labs has literally made like zero dollars. A company needs to make money eventually. You can't just fund it with VC funding and not make any revenue into perfect Fiduity, um, it just like doesn't work. Um, so I, I don't really blame Uniswap for turning on their interface fee And I think like making it just for Uniswap frontends is like a very, very fair way for them to do so. And I also agree with everything you said about sort of like reinvesting protocol like profits, right? Like even if you think Uniswap has won like the DEX competition, if, even if you think say like DYDX has like dominated the purpose market, right? Even if you think like Ethereum is like 
the best blockchain on planet Earth. The truth is, like, with the current users on chain today, like, no one has won yet. Like, the market can very drastically change in the next, like, two, three, five, ten years, right? You should be, like, building up that war chest and deploying it in order to, like, think of new product lines, like, increase your mode, whether that's, like, liquidity mode or, like, a branding mode, um, sort of, like, differentiate your product better and just build an overall, like, more valuable product. You shouldn't be giving that out to, sort of, like, governance token holders. And I think that's another thing, right? Um, We've always... I think a lot of people, like, know that, like, governance tokens are meant to be just governance tokens, but they always see it as equity. Um, and so they always, like, price and value it as equity and also expect things that, like, equity and, like, securities get, e.g., like, dividends. But if you think about, like, governance tokens, they're, like, literally meant to be governance tokens, right? If it's truly a governance token, should Uniswap be trading at, like, a $3 billion valuation? Probably not, to be honest. If it's truly can only be used to like vote on snapshot votes and yeah i think my final point is that i do have some gripes with like a token plus equity duo structure just because for like the same revenue generated you know like you can't disperse it to both parties right it can only be either or and i think that definitely is a problem for sort of like incentive alignment and value accrual probably the best case outcome of this whole like token plus equity dual structure debate is that in 10 years we get um tokens that are essentially programmable equity they get officially like listed as like securities and like they're well regulated and whatnot i think that's the best case outcome because with token plus equity dual structures there's always going to be this debate about like value accrual and incentive alignment and it's just like a fundamental like fact of nature that you cannot change yeah i like that you brought up the uh the point about tokenomic design here because the irony is curve has returned about a hundred hundred but somewhere between 100 and 120 million dollars of revenue to the token and it can do this because the token plays a very important role within the ecosystem and you know that like it uses ve tokenomics it needs locks so to incentivize locks it distributes uh these like dividend like uh returns to the lockers and that's why it can it can afford to do this and it's being it's not just like wasting money like it's playing the token plays a very dedicated role within the ecosystem which is in complete contrast to a pure governance token so uh, i appreciate that you brought that up because like that's the ultimate point here is if if you want early if you want dividends at a very very early stage protocol like it the token must play a role within the ecosystem or else you're like you're definitely better off reinvesting that capital and growth because they're like you're reinvesting in the most high growth industry that there is which uh, what i believe to be the most high growth industry in, in crypto and so yes like you have to beat the you know the, you have to beat the uh cost of capital in order to reinvest that instead of distribute it and i very much so believe that you can achieve that within crypto and that's just a better outcome than distributing revenue to token holders yeah, last thought on this point too. I just see a lot of bad takes on Twitter right now comparing like like the Uniswap people going, oh, well, look at what DYDX is doing. It's like they raked in like 100 million plus in fees over the last few years from V3 and they pretty much have enough capital to last for six and a half years into the future. So Uniswap didn't have that luxury. As you mentioned, Dan and Ren, they had to actually pay out LPs, couldn't hurt them by turning on a fee switch. So it accrued to, you know, Uniswap Labs. So I think it's just a very apples and oranges comparison and you really can't even draw parallels between the way the two are kind of going forward. Yeah, if I had to make like a Web2 comparison where Uniswap is today is probably like Uber in the first few years, they're probably like dominating like half of the US cities. And then imagine if like Travis Kalanick went to Bill Gurdy and said, all right, we're in a good spot. I'm gonna start sort of like giving out profits to equity holders. And then in the next five years, they get completely shafted in the Asian markets, in every single Asian market that they try to expand and dominate in. Like, it would just make zero sense. Yeah, I completely agree, Ren. But uh, that's probably a good place to leave it. So thank you all for tuning into this week's episode. Pibbles, Ren, thanks for hopping on. It was a pleasure to have you. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.